Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So there's a little organization in the United States of America that has a big, big impact. And some people don't think it is a good impact. And that group is called the National Rifle Association. So the NRA has been in the news a tremendous amount lately. They're always in the news, but lately it's been bigger because it's caught up in a lot of turmoil. There's massive investigations. There's Russian conspiracies, infighting, you name it. So I decided that we should have someone on the show to talk about what's going on at the NRA, what's going on with gun control, with assault weapons, all these different things that impact our lives on a daily basis. And so I figured we would have the most unlikely person on to talk about this. Her name is Shannon Watts. She is the founder of a group called Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And her story of how she got here is really fascinating. So I'm very, very excited to have Shannon on today, and we're going to get to what is going on inside the NRA. Shannon, thank you for joining us today. This is very, very, very exciting. I'm sure your husband's listening, and he's he's more excited than I am. He is. He told me I needed to up my game because you are so clever. <laughs> we'll see how we'll see how that works out. So. Uh, you have a new book out. We're going to get to that. Um, uh, but first, I want to get to you've had a pretty intense couple of days on Twitter. The NRA has been coming after you and uh, and sending people after you uh, on social media. You've had a, a ton of death threats. What happened and how and why? And then we'll kind of get to why you uh, are sitting here explaining all this. Yes. So I'm not really sure why this happened, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I started noticing that um, my Instagram page was just getting inundated with death threats and uh, just insults. Um, And I, I couldn't figure out where that was coming from. And I noticed that someone had tagged the NRA. And so I went to their Instagram page. And throughout the day, they have about a million followers. They tagged me three different times. I just made my Instagram page public about two months ago for the book. So I only have about 4,000 followers. I think they saw that I was vulnerable there, and that's where they decided to go after me, as mm. opposed to on Twitter, where I have 300,000 followers. I don't really understand what the purpose is, because they're not trying to diminish me. They're not talking about the organization. They're simply sending trolls my way. And I don't know if that's because they purposely want to endanger me. Well, so do you think, so one of the things about the NRA is that they always need an enemy, right? And it's been, it's been the biggest struggle for them under the Trump administration because Trump is not an enemy. He's, a, uh, he's one of the few presidents who's ever spoken at the NRA organizations. Uh, the last one before him was, of course, uh, was it Bush? Uh, mm-hmm. And then before that was was uh, Reagan. And um, and it's a uh, under Obama, it was like the best of all worlds because they have this group that this person that they can go after who's against them and against the Second Amendment and against guns and so on. And so they've struggled to find an enemy. Is part of that that they're now just looking for enemies? Or I mean, it seems like they have quite a few these days. It might be. They certainly don't have a boogeyman in the White House to drive people to buy guns every time there's a mass shooting. They're $100 million in the hole, the gun manufacturers are, since Trump was elected. Do they want to make a middle-aged mom the enemy? Maybe they do. Okay, so let's tell the story of how it is that you ended up uh, essentially sitting here writing a book uh, about um, taking on the NRA and so on. Uh, Walk us through that story. 
So I was a stay-at-home mom after being in a corporate communications executive. Uh, stay-at-home for about five years with five kids, ranging in age from elementary to college at that point. And I can remember folding laundry the day the news was coming in over the television and thinking, you know, don't the let... Day of the, the day of Sandy Hook Sandy shooting. Hook, yeah. Thinking, don't let this be as bad as it looks on the news. Uh, and as we know, the news was a million times worse than you can really wrap your mind around. And I was so angry. And I thought, okay, I've got to figure out how to get my family of seven out of this country. But that's just not practical. And I love my country. So I thought, I'll stay and fight. I didn't know what that looked like for a mom in suburban Indiana. I knew how to start a Facebook page. And I had about 75 Facebook friends at the time. And I called it One Million Moms for Gun Control, not knowing that One Million Moms was an anti-gay group and gun control was... A verboten phrase. <laughs> just, did you, when you did that, did you have any concept that a million people would ever click on it? Or was it just no, like, oh, okay. no. I mean, I must have heard of one million moms or just it, for whatever reason, it, I wanted to be part of a badass army of women, particularly mothers, who I knew instinctively were the yin to the gun lobby's yang. And so you're sitting, what, in your living room? I'm sitting or? in my kitchen, open up my laptop, start this Facebook page. And I am just inundated with comments from other women, from outreach, you know, type A women Googling me on finding all my information, calling me, sending me emails, and asking how they could do this, whatever that meant, where they lived. And so so what happens is it explodes, right? It, ex- it just absolutely exploded. And, and, and what was your, we, we, did you realize at this point, oh, I, I'm, I have the opportunity to make a difference or was it just, you were just kind of went along with the wave? I went along with the wave and, and, you know, you have to remember I was just living a normal life, um, doing what I wanted to do. And suddenly I was busier than I had ever been having a full-time job and kids. It was a complete 24 hour a day job and it was as a volunteer. And I can remember my husband looking at me one night when I went to bed and just said, like, this is going to be life-changing. This is a very big deal. And did you, uh, at what point did you realize, okay, this is, the, this is my thing. Like, this is the thing that I'm going to, to actually get behind. And also, at the same time, at what point did you realize it could actually have an impact, that it could make change happen? Again, I never had time to sort of reflect. I just knew that this was going to get done, and there were all these other women and mothers who were going to help me make it happen. I think when I realized that we had some influence and some power was when we got a call from the White House just a couple of months after we started the Obama White House, and they said, we've been waiting for women and mothers to organize on this issue, and we want you to stand with us at a press conference and help us pass the Manchin-Toomey bill, which would have closed the background check loophole. And the fact that we were on their radar said to me that this was pretty significant. So let's just back up for a bit. So the the NRA, um, uh, pretty Sandy Hook, uh, is an organization that has really never had opposition, uh, especially on a state level. They have been a, uh, they've written the laws of the land, literally written them and then handed them to to lawmakers and they have become law. And um, and this has been the case since pretty much 1977, when the organization became a hardline organization. Um, is you starting um, the this group, uh, is this the first time that there is really kind of uh, a response that we're not going to take this anymore? Or, is, or have there been others before that? There have been think tanks in Washington, D.C. 
There have been one-off state organizations, local city organizations. There has never been a nationwide grassroots movement that is connected, that is all fighting this at both the federal and state level. Never. Never. And we started organizing that way immediately. And I was talking to you a minute ago about Mansion Toomey. When that failed by just a handful of votes in the Senate, we pivoted and started doing this work in our state houses because even though Congress wasn't acting after Sandy Hook, governors were. Let's, so after the thing that I think a lot of people can't get their head around um, is that Sandy Hook happens, 21 children are killed. 20, 20 children, mm-hmm. six adults. Um, and it's a moment where everyone's like, okay, well, this is the moment. This is, this is the time that we have had to have had enough, like six and seven-year-olds murdered uh, in a school. Um, and it doesn't go through. And do you, is it, do you think that it doesn't go through because the NRA is so powerful or it doesn't go through because there was no opposition? What is the reason that it doesn't change? Because when you look at what happened in New Zealand, uh, there's a mass shooting in Church Christ and two days later, literally two days later, they ban mm-hmm. assault weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lost 20 kids and 100, I mean, there's what, 400,000 people that have been killed since guns, uh, since 9-11 mm-hmm. in America, and nothing has changed. Why does it not go through? Well, two reasons. One is that we have a gun lobby. And what's interesting is that the NRA seemed like they might moderate after Sandy Hook. Uh, it took them almost two weeks to come out and say anything at all. And I honestly thought they would come out and say, okay, we've got to figure out how to fix this. You know, we will support background checks or something, anything. And they have been pulled so far to the right by smaller gun organizations, particularly in the States. That like the GOA and NSSF. And- exactly. And where I live, you know, the, mountain, the Rocky Mountain gun owners, all of these smaller groups that believe any kind of law is an infringement. And so they came out and really doubled down in a press conference and said they're famous, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, which pointed Congress in the same direction we've always been going. And the Congress we had the day before Sandy Hook was the same one we had after, right? This We didn't have the power or the momentum to get done what New Zealand did because of the gun lobby. And, and what I see now in retrospect is that First of all, Congress isn't where this work begins. It's where, it's where it ends. But also that we had to do the heavy lifting of building that grassroots movement, of building the power and the momentum. And that's how stuff gets done. So how much of this relates to um, the, when you look back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, uh, I remember growing up uh, watching the Muzzles Against Drunk Driving commercials. Um, is this kind of that inflection point? Because pre-Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the laws were lax, the the enforcement was was diabolical, there were kids killed on side streets of drunken people coming home, and it changed, and it took moms to change it. Is Do you believe that, that moms in America are powerful enough to change this philosophy of fear that the NRA has kind of created over the years? Absolutely. How? I, I do. You know, I, the, the NRA has convinced a very small group of vocal extremists that their guns are going to be taken away. 80 million moms, especially after school shooting after school shooting, are afraid their children will be taken away. And, and you know, again, I say this as a white suburban mom who is essentially living in a bubble, not realizing that 100 Americans are shot and killed every day in this country, whether it's in the city centers or rural suicides. And I, 
I honestly believe that the organizing power, that, that in many ways moms are the secret sauce to organizing. You know, we can multitask, we have all these skills, um, and we know the levers of power available to us, our voices and our votes. We're not making the laws that impact our families and our communities. And so this is how we can act. So in response to... Um you know, these shootings, we've had a bunch that happened this week. Um, it seems like there's been one almost every day this month. Uh, they have just become, they are essentially kind of noise, right? They're, you know, there's there's no, you get this breaking news alert, um, you go to Twitter, you read about it, and that's it. And it's just on with the next. And the question I have is, I mean, there's part of me that looks at this and says, oh, well, I remember as a kid, uh, when there was hijackings all the time and we created the TSA and we, um, you now have to walk through metal detectors and planes don't, and there's now barricaded doors on in the cockpit and planes don't get hijacked anymore, um, especially in America. It's been decades. Uh, but but we, we're afraid of flying as people. Like there's a thing that we're afraid of. When you say like, oh, there's a, there's a one in X chance that you're child might be killed or something like that it doesn't seem like people are, are as afraid because statistically speaking it's much lower is uh, what is it that changes is the question that i have like what is it that needs to happen or has it already happened that we actually will start to see real change happen or a, a version of a tsa that something like that that, yeah. that is created and there's a lot there you know th everyone is waiting for this cathartic moment in congress that, that that is going to somehow say, okay, we've changed as a country. And, and I do believe that will happen. But the work that has to happen first happens in the states. It happens in state houses and boardrooms. I was at Levi's yesterday speaking to 1,000 employees for their community event because they've made this issue a priority. Um, in, in state houses last year, we had the best year we've ever had. We passed bills in 20 states for stronger gun laws, nine of them signed by Republican governors. What were some of those bills? Uh, red flag laws, bills that keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers, uh, closing the background check loophole. And, and a lot of it spurred by governors who wanted to act after Parkland. We tripled in size after wow. that happened. And, and then we were able to parlay that into a lot of electoral wins. We elected, you know, my, my former Moms Demand Action volunteer colleague, Lucy McBath, is now the congresswoman from Georgia. And on top of that, we flipped seven state legislatures to be what we call gun sense majority. And we've gone back into those already this year and passed stronger gun laws. So this work is happening. I don't believe that this is a polarizing issue in America, right? The, the NRA wants us to believe that or media wants us to believe that it's almost 50-50. It's not. 90% of Americans, 80% of gun owners, 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws. This is about getting people to actually vote on the issue. And we're starting to also see that change. Uh, CNN did a poll last week that said this is the third most important issue to Democratic voters. What's the second and first? Climate change, health care, and then gun safety. It's almost like if you flipped it, those would be the important ones to uh, Republicans, <laughs> climate change being at the bottom. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to keep my Republican jokes aside for a minute here. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so um, so what is what's like the next step here? I mean, you've got. Let's talk a little bit about where the NRA mm -hmm. is right now. So, um, for the first time ever, their nonprofit status is p potentially in jeopardy. You've got the Marie Batuna story, who was the Russian operative who somehow managed to wor worm her way in there. Uh, it's not difficult to think about how she pulled it off. Um, you've got the turmoil at the top. The NRA suing Ackerman McQueen, their um, uh, their the, the partner for thirty years that came up with the good guy with a gun phrase. 
it seems like that it's, you know, I, I look at some of the material they, they email out all the time and so on. And, and it's one of them that they just sent out is that this is the hardest point. We've never had so many enemies in the history of the NRA. And I actually kind of would agree with them on that. Like, how does this all play out? Well, it will be very interesting to see how these investigations go. We know Oliver North is still hanging on to information that involves sexual impropriety and spend, spending that we don't really understand. We know that Wayne LaPierre, for example, spent half a million dollars on suits from Beverly Hills and personal travel. Uh, so a lot will still come out about the organization. You know, we have, I, I always say that our job is to shine a flashlight under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. And that's what we've been doing with the NRA for six years. And we want lawmakers to see how incredibly toxic they are and their agenda is. So they do not even want to associate with them. And you may remember in this last election cycle, the NRA took down all of its ratings for candidates because mm -hmm. it knew that an A rating was not a positive anymore. We saved all that data and put it back up. But they go into the 2020 elections in the weakest place they've ever been. That doesn't mean they're down and out. <laughs> they're just waiting probably for a Democratic president. Uh, but they are going to be significantly weaker going into the 2020 election. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, the New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, the New Yorker covers a full range of topics, including politics, news, international affairs, climate change, gun control, the environment, popular culture, you name it, arts, fiction, food, and the only thing that actually gets me through my week, the cartoons. Uh, the the writers are just phenomenal. You know their names. You've read their stuff. They've won Pulitzers. You name it. You've got Hilton Alls, who writes about theater. He won a 2017 Pulitzer for Criticism. Ronan Farrow, who helped bring down Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves. You've got uh, Helen Rosner, James Beard Award-winning food writer. It's just incredible stuff. Go there anytime to the website and you will read dozens and dozens of amazing analysis on anything that's happening today, this week, this year, you name it. Um, they, New York is actually going to offer as a special, special discount today. This is a, a really big deal, so pay attention. You get 12 weeks for just $6. That is cheaper than a latte, uh, and I'm not over-exaggerating when I send that. Plus, you get a free New Yorker tote bag. Who gets a free New Yorker tote bag when you get a latte? Once again, it's 12 weeks for just $6. All you need to do is go to newyorker.com slash hive. Listeners will save 50% when they enter the word hive. That's H-I-V-E, in case you don't know how to spell it. Once again, newyorker.com slash hive. You get unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every single day, access to their apps, online archives, crossword puzzles, you name it, and of course, the New Yorker tote bag. So what else do you want? NewYorker.com slash Hive. Enter the code Hive. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
Okay, so one thing that I've always found so fascinating about the NRA is is their ability to mobilize. And yes, the numbers are much smaller than people say, uh, but there's a story I heard about um, uh, from some reporting I was doing where um, back in the 70s, there was a bill that was going to be passed in, in, in um, California, and the NRA reached out to... Uh, it was a handgun bill or something like that. And they reached out to their constituents and they said, call your senators and congresspeople and you, you, governor, you name it, and tell them if they pass this bill uh, that we are going to do everything we can to vote them out of office. And before they told them to do that, um, there was it was like a 97% chance this thing was going to go through. So 300,000 people from the NRA call, write letters, do all these things. 400 people uh, on the from the left uh, do the same thing. The bill fails dismally, doesn't go anywhere. And the thing that I was so amazed by and actually impressed by is afterwards, the NRA reaches out to those same 300,000 people and they say, now send a letter and say thank you and I will remember that. And they did. And, um, and it's almost like what I find so f- fascinating, if you can kind of like remove yourself from your feelings about the organization and look at the way it works it's actually very impressive and they've had instances you know they've had the the the, the gun act in 1994 they've you know the assault weapons ban they've had they've had things that they have lost but they always somehow manage so it's like the in terminator like arnold schwarzenegger comes back together like they always manage to do that don't you think they'll be able to do that again maybe someday Unless we're able to continue to harness the momentum and the power we have, I think a great example of of how they don't have that same power that they used to, um, in the first two years of the Trump presidency, they had a Republican president and a Republican Congress, and they still could not pass their two priority pieces of legislation. Concealed carry reciprocity, which basically makes the lowest common denominator to get a gun permit the law of the land everywhere, um, and deregulating silencers. And those, that should have been a return on their investment for the $30 million they invested in Donald Trump, and they could not pass it. Because? Uh, in large part because of us. We stood in opposition. We went to every town hall for every single senator and put pressure on them. Mark Warner voted for it in the past. We showed up at pretty much every single event he had and got him to go on the record saying he would vote no this time. It is about grassroots power. And then if you look at VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, which includes a provision this time that would essentially close the boyfriend loophole, right? That's to broaden the definition of what a prohibited purchaser is to include stalkers and to include dating partners. Um, the NRA said, we're going we're gonna to score this. We're going to really take note and hold those lawmakers accountable who vote for VAWA. And what happened? It passed the House and more people vote, more, more Congress members voted for it than ever before, including Republicans. Do you worry that if there's a world where maybe, you know, there are some people who say that the NRA is, while it is an organization that has peddled fear and um, pushed for uh, deregulation of gun control and all these things over the years, that there are worse organizations out there? And the one that comes to mind, of course, is Gun Owners of America, Um, 300,000 people uh, or members. They are so hardline it makes the NRA look like a liberal organization run by Hillary Clinton. And um, do you worry that, you know, there's this, I have always, I read a lot of books about um, uh, uh, physics and uh, quantum theory, and I know I don't understand half the stuff I'm reading, but the one thing that I always think about is uh, is one of the laws of thermodynamics where it says that power, uh, it's essentially that power and energy 
there's no more that can be made and there's no less. It can just be redistributed. And I feel that that applies essentially to uh, power within our government um, and uh, and in land on the lo- the lay of the land and also in the media. Um, and I worry and wonder what you think uh, could happen if the NRA is kneecapped at some point. Uh, could gun owners of America kind of rise up and be even worse? There's so many scenarios, right? So the Tish James may have the power to completely undo the leadership and the board of the NRA, and does to, it become Tish James? Tish James is, is the the AG in New York. Got it. Yep. Um, and she's the one who's brought the suit against them. So yep. she may have the power to dismantle the leadership and the board of the NRA. What does that look like when it comes back together? If that happens, is it more extreme or is it moderate? Um, gun owners of America, yes, they're the most extreme. But if you look at the NRA, they they won't give on anything. There isn't a single piece of legislation we've ever worked on that they have supported or uh, thought would be acceptable to them. So. You're just talking about a group that is even more extreme than the NRA, but not necessarily the same political power, especially when you look at where does the NRA's money come from. It comes from gun manufacturers. So it also depends on where do they want to put their bets. So right now that they're, they've are they gone to, there's a lot of internal wars happening at the NRA. You've got the um, Ackerman McQueen and, the, and Ackerman McQueen, which is the ad agency out of Oklahoma, essentially created Wayne LaPierre. They made him who he is. They got rich off him. He got rich off them and so on. What's the story behind why they're falling out now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that is also starting to come to light. Uh, Very interesting to learn that, for example, their spokespeople, Dana Lash, Colleen Noir, Oliver North, were all actually paid by Ackerman McQueen. Um, The relationship there goes back so far And I think what started to happen was that there were investigations. Cary Guard was a failure. That was the NRA's insurance plan that they thought was going to sustain them financially. That was the insurance plan that if you shot and killed someone, they would insure you for such a thing? My favorite part is that it it included cleanup and psychological (laughs) services. That They would cover those things. The cleanup part is concerning. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, all of these things started to fail that Ackerman was working on, including NRA TV, which has not also been a resounding success. And even their board members have said, why are you talking on NRA TV about immigration and putting Ku Klux Klan hats on members of Thomas the Tank? And, you know, why are you talking about these things that have nothing to do with guns? And so I think there just started to be a rift. And it sounds like the billing process was not exactly transparent. And so when it came time for them to account for all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars that it looks like have been diverted to friends, family, and favored contractors, um, that's when they started having to point fingers at one another. So uh, um, you said that that Dana Loesch and and folks like that are paid by Ackerman McQueen, but the NRA pays Ackerman McQueen $60 million or so a month. And so... It's just really kind of being funneled. But now you have a situation where you had Oliver North, who was the president of the board and essentially took on Wayne LaPierre and lost. Um, but he was being paid a million dollars by Ackerman McQueen. So the, the question is, is at what point does um, does, does the, the people who, if, if Ackerman McQueen is being sued by the NRA, but they're paying Dana Loesch, does Dana Loesch eventually have to start attacking the NRA because she's being paid by, and you know, how does I, that? I think it will be fascinating to see who gets to keep their jobs. My guess is that NRA TV will go by the wayside. 
Um, it will, it may not, but that is my guess. Yeah. It has been dwindling in terms of views and the amount that they promote it as, as something that's important to them. So will those spokespeople keep their jobs? Will they be pitted against Wayne LaPierre? I don't know. But the really interesting part, and we haven't seen this really, the, the NRA has been very watertight. We're starting to see people leak. Yeah. They're starting to talk to the press. Yeah. They're starting to say, I saw Dana Lash's contract and she makes a million dollars. Or, you know, I was in charge of fundraising and you wouldn't believe how much they spend on these materials. Um, and so that is also an interesting part of this because the more information we have, the more members realize how their money is being misspent. Yeah, I think that's the most fascinating. I mean, one, you know, I've covering tech for all these years and uh, you can always see when there's a problem at a tech company because the things start leaking. And uh, and I've always found it so fascinating that nothing has ever leaked about the NRA until cut to a couple of weeks ago where stories started coming out about what it's like inside and so on. And uh it, no, it's very fascinating. Do you? Um, so you and Dana Loesch have had your your uh, squabbles on on the internet um, and in person. And in person, uh, what's your theory? Like, is is I, I, the part that I don't understand about Dana is um, there's a part of her that you know she says she's a Christian and and super religious uh, as a mom, and I and and then she is can be pretty aggressive. <laughs> I mean, that would be putting it mildly. <laughs> can be pretty aggressive on the internet, uh, on Twitter, uh, uh, um, and doesn't necessarily come across as that empathetic. Uh, um, I'm trying to be polite here. Uh, um, but do you believe that she actually believes all the things that she's saying or that it's that she is, she's had, she has to pick a side because she gets paid to pick a side and that that's the side she's picked? I think it's the latter, but that would imply that she has a moral compass that would steer her a different direction uh, if possible. And I, I just, I don't, I, I think she's just a mean-spirited person. And it's it's expressed in this way because this is how she makes the money that she makes. But a lot of people don't realize that she was so much worse on Twitter before the NRA actually hired her. In I mean, what way? So just ad hominem attacks, and you can Google them and see. I mean, she attacked Meghan McCain. Uh, she would attack gun violence survivors. She would um, attack gun violence survivors? Yes. She wow. would fight with Sandy Hook survivors on Twitter. Um, she would say the most horrible things about you know people's looks, uh, what they wore, the way they wore their hair. She just really went all in. And when the NRA hired her, um, it, it sort of defamed her a little bit on online, and people probably find that hard to believe, given the things she says now. But it's true. Wow. And so she, but she essentially is a response to you, right? The NRA found themselves. If you go back and look at all the uh, paraphernalia from the conventions over the past, I don't know, forty years, it's all white men on white billboards, uh, and. Uh, once you guys started your group, the NRA was like, oh, we need a we need a mom. And mm. it seemed like Dana was the perfect person. Is that right? I think so. But I, I just, I don't think she ever represented what a mom acts like and looks like. So that was a very hard fit for them, for her to fit that mom mold. They made some videos where, you know, she sort of dressed like a mom and she basically had on a huge crucifix and you know, talked about how it's so important for moms to defend themselves. But it's just not her persona. She's more of a pit bull, an attack dog. And I don't think it fit. 
Okay, so let's talk about your book for a little bit. So uh, it's called Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. And um, it comes out uh, at the end of the month. Yep. Uh, very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you, um, <clears throat> what, what was the point of, of the book? Was it to try to kind of grow the organization or to explain how this all began? Or what was your de- decision to do this? Really both of those things. You know, I get calls all the time, particularly from women who say, I want to do something like this, but on a different issue. I want to do this in my community or in my state or even across the country. Um, And these are the things I'm passionate about. And how did you do it? I also wanted to tell the stories of our volunteers, which are just amazing, how they've organized, particularly in states you'd never imagined we could have success, like a state like Arkansas. Um, And I, I also wanted to encourage women to learn these skills, and then to use them to run for office. We had 40 volunteers run for office last November, 17 40 women. volunteers that were part of your yes. organization? Yeah, everything from city council to Congress, 17 won. Wow. Um, and we train them, and, and we're getting ready to enter another election cycle with them. And do you think that this election cycle is going to be harder than the last one? For, for gun safety? Gun safety, or is, is there anything that's going to change? I think what's so fascinating to me, and, and you have to go back six years. So when I would go to Congress and have meetings, people would like look at their watch and you know get their staff to say they were busy and get pulled out to go to a floor meeting, <laughs> floor vote. And now we have all of these presidential candidates competing with one another to be the best on this issue, hmm. uh, calling us, wanting... Moms to Man Action volunteers to stand with them in their red shirts at their events. And that is a complete sea change. Well, what's so? I think one of the things that's so fascinating is if you go back and look at the political, um, political ads over the years, uh, it, was, it was Republicans touting how their rating from the NRA for many, 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 many years, uh, their issue on gun control, so on and so forth. Uh, not on gun control, on, on, on the Second Amendment, uh, and Democrats not even going anywhere near it. They just wanted, they right. would just, they would, many Democrats, especially those in states that could be, that could be purple, uh, were begging for ratings um, or anything. And, and now you have, there was an ad recently, I saw that last year, where the, the ad begins on YouTube with this presidential candidate, uh, sorry, Senate candidate saying, fuck the NRA. Like, literally, that's <laughs> the beginning that of one. it. And yes. it's like, talk about a, a change. And now it's, as you said, the NRA took down the ratings. They, um, uh, it's become a, it's a sense of pride to have an F rating. Uh, I get, the question I have, though, is this part of me that, you know, that wonders if this is like abortion um, as an issue where there you're not going to change people's minds about it. Um, that at the end of the day, people feel so strongly about it that in one direction or another that that it's just not it's not going. There's not going to be some grand sweeping change like there was with um, uh, with drunk driving or or drugs or whatever it was. Um, do you worry about that too? No, because unlike those issues, the country isn't really divided. This is not a polarizing issue among Americans. The vast majority support stronger gun laws. Uh, and, and there is, again, a vocal minority. You're not going to change their minds. It doesn't matter as long as we can get the majority to actually vote on this issue, to be thinking about it when they go into the polls. And 
Also, we know that we can change the hearts and minds of lawmakers. We're not going to unelect all of them, but when you look at Mark Warner or Kristen Gillibrand, you know, these are people who used to vote regularly with the NRA and have, for whatever reason, um, changed their positions. And we can do that more and more the more toxic the NRA becomes. Do you think that um, that there's a possibility that uh, Wayne LaPierre will have to step down and someone else will take over, or is he kind of... Does he have so much control and power that he's there to stay, even at 70 years old? If you had asked me before the NRA convention, I would have said, you know, it sounds like Wayne has had his last days, but I was shocked that he came out on top during that coup. And I think it goes to show you that he does have the support of the board. Um, He has his ride-or-die people like Marion Hammer, the longtime Florida NRA lobbyist. And I'm not sure what changes unless the board changes. Are you, uh, if you had your way, if, uh, if you know, some a fairy came along and said, uh, you can wave a wand, um, would you completely eradicate guns in the United States or would you want something different? No. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to gun owners. Um, this is a country that has a Second Amendment and cherishes its right to self-defense. What we want to do is restore the responsibilities that go along with those gun rights that have been eroded year after year. As you said, lawmakers, gun lobbyists essentially writing laws for lawmakers. And in many ways, Moms to Men Action has actually become what the NRA used to be. We are an organization for responsible gun owners. I mean, that's what they should be about still. And they've become so radicalized, they're, they're leaders, that they are not amenable to any kind of law that would stop this crisis. And it is within our power. Data and research shows us that laws, stronger laws, actually do stop gun violence. Okay, so tell me about that because Dana Loesch will go on Twitter and mm-hmm. say, and, and Chris Cox, who runs the ILA, uh, the, the NRA's um, lobbying group, they, they say, oh, this is the, the, the laws are ridiculous and don't do anything, and look what happened with the assault weapons ban. How do the laws actually make a difference? When we look at that states that have stronger gun laws, like a background check on every gun sale, we see fewer gun deaths. We see less guns getting into the hands of dangerous people. Um, when you have states that pass laws that disarm domestic abusers, you see fewer women killed by guns. It, 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 it is like climate change. The science is in. You can debate whether you want to implement the things that would actually stop gun violence, but you can't debate the fact that these these laws and the data around them show that they're effective. And I think Missouri is a really good example. That is a state that had incredibly strong gun laws. Um, a, A Republican majority was elected. They undid all of them. They then saw a spike in gun homicides and gun suicides. I mean, it's essentially the case study for what happens when you have strong gun laws and what happens when you have weak gun laws. Do the people who, these politicians, do you think that they, and I, this is just a, it's more of an existential crisis of humanity question, but I, I often wonder if these politicians that uh, believe that they are, if they believe that they're making the world a better place by, by putting more guns in the world, or if it's just politics. It's, it's a question I think about a lot because there are some people who actually do buy into this. And that is a different animal than, say, a member of Congress who's just voting this way or doing these things because they've been beholden to NRA. The NRA has given them money. It's sort of a quid pro quo. But when you go into state houses, what's interesting is that you meet lawmakers who actually buy all of this hook, line, and sinker, right? All of the 
mythology and all of the misinformation um, they've digested. And it's how they're making laws because they believe faux scientists and researchers like John Lott, you know, that's the favorite researcher of the gun lobby. And, and his data has been shown time and time again to be wrong. And yet that's what they're basing laws on. When you look at the NRA, when they respond to shootings, the um, I remember with Sandy Hook, for example, Wayne LaPierre showed this vid- this uh, clip of a video game of where you could go into a school and, and shoot kids. And it wasn't really a video game. It was just something they found that seemed to justify the... And he blamed he blamed it on video games and uh, and if it doesn't you can do a quick Google search to see that you know and he, that it's that more kids in Japan play first person shooters than they do in the U S yeah. that in England and Canada there are, in England there are obviously no guns but there are uh, as many gun deaths in a year that there are in an hour or two here um, do you do you think that these do, they, do you think that they know that some of the statistics they're putting out are not real? I, I know that 100%. And I, I have a running list of things that the NRA blames shootings on. Um, for example, after the Santa Fe shooting in Texas almost a year ago, they blamed it on not having enough exit doors, right? So there's just all these absurd things, uh, divorced parents, uh, you name it, they will blame it for mass shootings as long as it does not actually involve guns. But every nation... Every high-income country is home to people who are unstable, people who play video games. Uh, you know, my favorite is that it's the lack of Christianity. I mean, again, look at Japan. Every country is home to misogynist, racist bigots. Only America gives them easy access to arsenals and ammunition. Mm. What uh, What's going to be the next step with the um, in Congress? With you know, now that we have a uh, <clears throat> Democratic-controlled House and so on, is there going to be anything that's going to come through that you're going to see that will have an impact? Well, you know, the House has already passed several bills mm-hmm. um, that would strengthen gun laws. The question is whether the Senate will allow those to be voted on. Um, Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, a Republican, recently said, you know, and he supports stronger gun laws, he said if it would be allowed to be voted on, it would get the 60 votes it needed. Uh, but Lindsay, that comes down to Mitch McConnell. It t- comes down to Mitch McConnell. But Lindsey Graham also recently said, you know, the Second Amendment isn't a suicide pact. Mm. We've got to do something. So it will be interesting to see if if the Senate does move. But that's why the 2020 elections are so incredibly important, because we have to have a Congress in place that will make this an issue for them. What uh, um, last few questions, and then we'll we'll let you uh, get back to your book tour, but um, and death threats on the internet. Uh, <laughs> I got to get back to deleting <laughs> my Instagram comments. Uh, you should just log off for a few. That's my advice. I've had I've had some people come after me for for stories and things like that, and I just turn my phone off and and go for a walk. And- it's not a bad idea, but it, you know it's. It's the the death threats do you know as a mom of five they do yeah get I, I get it I mean I think I think that I, it's a problem of technology yeah. honestly I mean I think that it's like you know you uh, you I've been on both sides of it I wrote an article about someone who I scathed in the article and met them in person and was like. <laughs> Sorry, I was didn't realize you were a human being. Uh, uh, that was recently, actually, uh, and I apologized. And I was like, "Look, I, you know, like what you said in public was not that great." But, um, but I think that, um, but the bigger thing is the technology doesn't allow empathy, and yeah. uh, and they don't get to see that you are a mom of five, and um, uh, and that. And most of them are just sitting in their basement in their dirty underwear, you know, tweeting well, this stuff that's anyway. that's quite a visual. 
just uh, in between playing video games. Um, <laughs> uh, I forgot what my question was now, uh, now that we have that visual. You said painted. you were going to ask me a question, then I could get oh, back to my um, death threats. So uh, is there, you know, the, the natural progression of your work is you, uh, you start this Facebook page, um, you start uh, going to Congress and state level legislature, all these different things, and you um, uh, write a book. Is there a world where you run for office? Hmm. I get asked that a lot. Yeah. And what's the answer? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I have run. I have to be honest with you. It feels like I am in office and that I'm constantly campaigning and that I'm uh, facing the same kind of scrutiny um, and I'm up against you know, the, the NRA. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that I am passionate about helping other women run. Hmm. And that has been such an incredible passion of mine since starting Moms to Men Action to see these women, even if it's school board, um, particularly if they are gun violence survivors, to turn that incredible pain into action and to be able to be a part of that. For example, Congresswoman Lucy McBath, um, she will tell you that every single time we had a phone conversation in the five years before she ran, I would end it with, and when are you running for office? <laughs> and I just, that I can play a role in that is incredibly rewarding. But I don't know that that leads to office for me. Because it just seems like it's too much work or no. too much scrutiny or... I, you know, I, one thing I don't want is to allow the NRA to take down the legacy of Moms Demand Action and opening myself up for that, um, they would spare no expense to make sure that my candidacy, candidacy was about them and what it meant for them. Is there a part of you that looks back at, um, you know, uh, before you started all this and you look at the Obama administration and there was a point in time when they had the White House, the House, the Senate, more than 60 senators, and it could have overturned all of this stuff, but didn't. Is there a part of you that kind of holds any resentment to the fact that nothing changed when it could have? I just... I do, personally, <laughs> about a lot of things that they could have done, uh, but they were too busy trying to be bipartisan. Yeah, you know, I, I think when I'm going to try to look at the glass half full piece of this, which is we did have to build a movement, no matter what. Even if some things had gotten done at that time, you needed a sustained grassroots movement that would not only get this done, but protect the wins you have. So if you look at MAD, it took them 10 years to get everything done that they wanted to do, and they still have to show up and fight lobbyists to retain those wins and to protect them. And that's exactly how this movement will be too. And if we hadn't, if we didn't have hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of volunteers in every single state across the country and this grassroots army that was really making this a single issue for them, I don't know that any of this would have happened. And I, I think it will be like marriage equality. You know, I have a daughter who's gay and she has no idea there was like this huge battle. Yeah. She just, she's, just you know, 20 and she's like, I can marry whoever I running. want. Like, yeah. And I want it to be, and I think it will be like that with gun violence prevention, where the next generation realizes that we did make these wins. They have to be protected, but the country is a different place. Um, do you think that uh, when I look at, one of the arguments a lot of people have made to me about why the Republicans and the NRA are more effective is that when you look at guns, the idea of taking something away from people 
gives them a much stronger voice and they feel more passionate than the idea that there's a one in X thousand chance that you might know someone who gets shot or something like that. Uh, do you think that, that the, the, that plays a big role in this never changing? Well, about one in three Americans have been impacted by gun violence. And I do think the NRA has done a good job of making this, again, vocal minority believe that any kind of new law is going to be a slippery slope and ultimately result in the confiscation of everyone's guns. And that has made this base very passionate. But I I just think this is more about getting the what has been sort of a silent majority until now to actually go to the polls and vote on this issue. And you were talking about the A ratings. We started a whole campaign called Explain Your A. So you have an A rating from the NRA. Does that mean you support guns for domestic? Not you. <laughs> but if, say you're, I'm pretending you're a lawmaker. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You have an A rating. Scare me from that. The- <laughs> I'm like, oh Jesus, they've got it wrong. <laughs> you have an FX. Don't worry. Um, but if if you have an A rating. Does that mean you support guns for domestic abusers? Does that mean you don't support a background check on every gun sale? You can kind of go down the list of egregious beliefs that Americans don't agree with. So to me, it is about getting people off the sidelines, getting the vote. And so many of our volunteers come to our organization, not necessarily because they've been impacted by gun violence. I never have. Um, not because you know they they are gun owners necessarily, but because they are parents who sent their toddler or their kindergartner to school for the first time. And that child had to hide Mm -hmm. in the bathroom closet and pretend as though this thin piece of wood was going to protect them from the spray of an AR-15. And that is when parents in this country realize there's something really wrong and I I have to help fix it. Yeah, we are. We have a toddler, three and a half year old in school and email went out like, oh, we're doing our, you know, active shooter training today and it's like he's three and a half years old like that the fact that we're okay with that is just it's just insane on I w- so I was many levels with the ceo of levi's yesterday chip berg and he's very passionate about this issue and he lives in san francisco and he has a 10 year old he said his 10 year old does more lockdown drills than earthquake drills in san francisco hmm. and and we're acting as though this is an act of nature when it's a man-made act of cowardice yeah yeah um Thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, last question is, if you kind of were to look forward, let's just, I mean, I know that we don't know what's going to happen in 2020. Uh, we all have our theories. Uh, it, if you were to look forward and predict where you think this issue will be five, 10 years from now, what, what do you think it's about? Do you think that technology has played a role in solving it? Like I've talked to a couple of folks that were staunch NRA supporters that are like, oh, I got rid of my guns because I didn't want my kids to shoot themselves in the face and I now have a taser pulse or something like that. Um, do you think that there's a world in which that changes? I do. I, I think 10 years from now, we will have stronger gun laws. Those laws will have passed at a federal level, um, that we will have more research because we will actually be funding it so we can understand exactly what our crisis is and how we can solve it. And sure, I think that does involve technology. Um, and, and it will be interesting when that is allowed to go forward because the NRA right, has been back. a staunch opponent of any kind of technology that would make guns safer. Mind-boggling to me. Um, uh, but social media, I'm not sure, makes everything safer either. So here we go. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much. The book is Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the World. 
um, took on the gun lobby and, well, the world too. (laughs) (laughs) Took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Shannon Watts. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. There really is no point to say anything mean because that's what Twitter's for. Anyway, thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, The New Yorker. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. And I will see you all next week. Next week.